Hello, and welcome to the Lodgers Sorted Cinema's Twin Peaks podcast. My name is Simon Howell. I'm joined by the fantastic Kate Renabom. Hello. And I'm very excited to divulge that this week we are joined by Mr. Ricky D. What's up, Simon? What's up, Kate? Uh, Ricky and I are partners in crime for many, many podcasts, so it's only natural that uh, that you make an appearance here and now. Before we get any further, a few arbitrary plugs that must be plugged. If you have not already subscribed to the iTunes feed or the Stitcher feed or rated or reviewed us or done any of those nice things that you can do because we're not asking you for any money, uh, you can consider doing one of those things. I only mention it because some, some podcasts that I like very much uh, do solicit money, and that's that's fine, but that's not something I ever intend to do. So, uh, you know, t- take a moment and, uh, you know, it helps with the podcast visibility and all that, and uh, that really helps us out. Thanks again to everyone who has uh, chimed in in one form or another. Uh, we've had a really great time making our way through season one, and this week we end season one. We're almost done. <laughs> it's yeah, right. It's been a wild ride. Here we are, like a tenth of the way through this thing. <laughs> Woo! Uh, so uh, yes, today we are going to discuss the last evening, written and directed by Mark Frost. It is the season one finale. I was going to give a plot synopsis, but really, this is just the episode where every single C-plot, B-plot, and most of the A-plot comes to a head, some more explosive than others, and of course, the uh, the episode-ending reveal of Coop's getting shot. But as per usual, Ricky, we're going to start with you, and I just want to know, what's your what's your relationship with Twin Peaks like? Were you watching it at the time? Because I know you're, you're, slightly, you're a little bit older than me, although I don't want to you know, divulge anyone's exact age, but I'm wondering, were you watching it, like, as it was airing? No, so uh, my older cousin was a huge fan. She was watching it while it aired, and she recorded on VHS, and so she passed on the VHS copies to me later on in life, and I watched it. I watched these, like, really badly recorded, you know, VHS copies of Twin Peaks with commercials, and and it was interesting, you know, but I was watching it by myself. I wasn't involved in any sort of like water cooler talk week by week discussion of the episode or the series in general. I would watch it by myself and tell my friends there's this amazing co- show called Twin Peaks and you should all watch it. Only no one could watch it because you couldn't watch it anywhere. <laughs> and it finally did come out on DVD and I did purchase the original box set and I've since watched it three times. Uh, so four times in total. Um, and then they released the golden box set and the original box set didn't actually have the pilot. So I actually watched season one on for my second viewing without watching the pilot. So I completely forgot what happened in the pilot. And later on, I eventually got my hands on a pilot because we used to work at a video store called Movie Land, which had the original VHS uh, r- copy of the pilot, which eventually got stolen. But the Ricky, did the event, did the did the VHS copy? Did it have the European ending? I don't know. I never got a chance to rent it. It got stolen. Oh man, because this is so funny. It's like exactly how I saw the series. Like I, I think I saw the VHS like pilot copy with the European ending, and then mostly saw it on those DVDs that I forgot didn't have the pilot on them. That totally makes sense. When Simon and I used to work at Movie Land, people used to steal movies all the time. Um, I think, for example, like The Fight Club, uh, Clockwork Orange, and Scarface were every every single time we we purchased a copy of of Scarface, for example, it would always get stolen. So we don't know who stole it because it would be like someone would make a fake account and never return a film. But Indeed. I've always been a huge fan of David Lynch. And uh, when I was younger, I used to live 
near a video store called Video Roma. And the clerk would let me rent whatever I would want to rent. So he would, for example, let me rent R-rated like horror films. And I rented Blue Velvet at a young age. And I was just amazed when I saw that movie for the first time. It was just mind-boggling for me being like 12 years old or what have you. So um, I've loved David Lynch ever since I was a kid, Ever even before I would consider myself a movie buff. You know, we're talking about the days when I didn't know who Martin Scorsese was, but I knew who David Lynch was. So that goes uh, that goes quite a ways back. So I know that you've been making your way through the series along with us, essentially, uh, and you're you're now caught up to here uh, along with us. And I don't know how well you remember the episodes that are to follow, but uh, how's your how's your rewatch been? It's been great. I um I love season one. I, I honestly think that season one is a near masterpiece. I love the way it's plotted. I love the way it's photographed. I love the cinematography. I love the music. I love the characters. Uh, I love just about every single one of these episodes. I think that this is a good episode for what it's trying to do. It's most likely my least favorite episode of season one. And I think it has a lot to do with Mark Frost because he is one of the co-creators. But this is the first episode in which he writes and directs. And I think the difference between Lynch and Frost is Lynch really brings the murder, the mystery, the supernatural, the melodramatic soap opera feel to the show. Whereas Mark Frost, and I could be wrong, right, but it kind of feels like he's very mechanical. And in this episode, it plays out like a typical season finale of some sort of like murder mystery. It still has some scenes here and there that are kind of like odd. For example, when uh, Jacques talks about Laura Palmer and the bird Waldo and there's a bit of slow motion, you know. So there's there's like specific moments where you do kind of feel the David Lynch vibe, I guess you could say. But overall... I and I, I love this episode. Do not get me wrong. Like I think it's still a good episode, but it's my least favorite episode because it doesn't feel as quirky or weird or odd as the previous episodes. And it feels like a bit of mystery is missing. In fact, a lot is revealed and there's more mysteries that come into play. But I don't know. There's just something about it. It's 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 odd. It, it feels like there's less Lynch in this specific episode than previous episodes. So I don't know. Um I'm actually going to talk about my two favorite scenes later on, and they're actually two very small, quiet moments within this episode. I'm pretty sure, Simon, you can guess what I'm going to say. Probably. Uh, Kate, do you agree? Is this is this one of the lesser lights of season one? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, like, I knew Ricky wasn't such a big fan of it before watching it, so I, I will admit that that may have uh, attracted my attention towards the less strong parts of it, but... Um, I mean, certainly it, it is an episode that is very much more about, uh, yeah, developing the plot. It, it And it does, I think, speak to the fact that Frost, I don't know, so much of his contribution to the show, I think, really revolves around, um, yeah, kind of knowledge of television mechanics, right? I mean, David Lynch is, was not a television uh, person before this, whereas Frost was. And I think Frost is... Um, you know, to his credit, like very interested in the way TV works and the way these kinds of structures get set up and played out. And Frost is very good at it. I mean, this is really what this episode is, is it's a kind of, um, you know, the, the payoff of a season-long development of multiple, multiple plot lines. And I mean, again, to Frost's credit, I think the episode does a good job of 
maintaining kind of tension across all of those uh, through lines here. And you get sort of like a, a lot of great stuff kind of doled out in small pieces in terms of plot and in terms of the kind of melodramatic elements of the show. Yeah, but I mean, like, aside from that, I think stylistically particularly, it's a little on the weaker end. Frost is maybe for good reason, not a television director. I mean, I, there are a couple of really odd uh, choices that he makes that I'm not crazy about here. But then there are also really reasonable, like really nice sequences as well. And again, some great kind of performance elements from different people. So I think sort of in the middle. I mean, I don't hate the episode, but it's not my favorite either. Yeah. But it does it does feel like a well-oiled machine. Like everything's yeah, exactly. calculated. And there's there seems to be less time for symbolism and less time for some of the weird spiritual elements that Lynch likes to incorporate into the show. But I think the reason why Twin Peaks is so special is because of what you just said, Kate, is because Lynch is not really a director for TV, but he's yeah. a fantastic filmmaker and he's brilliant in general. And so when you when you have him adapt something for television, it's going to be weird no matter how hard you try to force him to follow within the rules of whatever TV studios want him to f do, right? And regardless, it's still going to come across as being completely different than anything you see on television. And things have slightly changed nowadays with, you know, like Netflix and we got filmmakers making the jump to Netflix like David Fincher and Martin Scorsese and there's more freedom and a bigger budget but I still to this day have not seen a show quite like Twin Peaks and a lot of people have tried Riverdale for example um, but no <laughs> one comes close and, and the reason why no one comes close is because David Lynch it's it's like he has a very childlike he feels like a kid sometimes like I don't know if, how to explain this but his character seeing even even his his weirdest and strangest characters seem very innocent and naive and victims. And the way he directs his cast, the, the, the way the, they deliver performances, like he feels very heavily inspired by clearly film noir, but classic movies. Like they have this acting style that you just do not see nowadays. And it reminds me of not, not just like, like a lot of people mention soap operas, which we can talk about later on, but it reminds me of like classic movies from like the forties and fifties, like the way they delivered their dialogue, their physical performances. It's, it's very unusual, but in a fascinating way. I'm going to concur with both of you that there's some good stuff in this episode. There is some, uh, there's some portends of the, the the dark ages to come that we will get to in uh, a few episodes from now. I should say a few episodes of the podcast. It's quite a few episodes of the show before we get there, thankfully. But uh, there's a couple of shots in particular where you can feel Frost kind of reaching for Lynchian effects, and they don't quite land. Like that long zoom into Jacoby's eyeball that turns into the oh, roulette yeah. wheel. It just it's it seems on paper like a good idea, but it just it doesn't connect quite the way it should. I don't know if it's a function of editing or the fact that it just takes so damn long. That's a good example. I I also think of the shot of I believe it's Hank with the uh, with the antlers sort of lining yeah. up on his head. Like it's just it's just not it's off brand Lynch. Yeah, I there's also some weird thing going on where. Um... Frost has had to shoot at least a couple of uh, these shots with um, video. Like he's gone back and done a kind of a cover shot later, something that they didn't shoot when they were sort of doing the first run with celluloid. And the um, the shot of Jacoby's head is sort of like that. And, and there's a couple other ones. You get a shot towards uh, the end, the shot actually where Coop is shot. And the final, the final close-up of the gun is a video insert. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the kind of thing that like would not have been obvious on television in uh, 1990. I mean, the quality would have been so 
uh, low that it all would have looked the same. But now, as things have been put onto a uh, you know, 1080p kind of Netflix scenario, you can see what was done after the fact. And I, I'm confused as to like why that sequence with Jacoby, which he clearly, which Frost clearly wants to be a kind of stylistic calling card sort of moment, like why that would have been shot on video. That is interesting because I did not know this, but re-watching the episode a few days ago, I could not help but think that it looks stylistically so different than the rest of the, the the episode, like I'm talking specifically about the last scene in which Cooper gets shot, like that makes sense. It does not look like the same kind of, kind of film stock because clearly it wasn't. Yeah, um, yeah. But my two favorite moments of this episode, actually, I think the best scene, and maybe you guys will disagree, but the best scene is when we get the conversation with Pete and Catherine. Because, like, the thing about this episode is there's so much going on, right? Like, people are getting shot. Some guy's running around with an axe trying to behead some dude. Like, someone's getting <laughs> strangled. Someone has a heart attack. But they still find time for these smaller moments for these smaller characters. And I say smaller characters, meaning, like, they're not the main characters, like Andy, for example. But I love the scene with Pete and Catherine. Like, like you get to n understand this couple and understand, like, within, like, a, I guess, like, less than five minutes, you know so much about these two people and their relationship and their past and and why the relationship's somewhat dysfunctional. And, and I love Pete because he loves her so much. Like, that scene when he declares that Catherine is still his wife and regardless of what happens he's going to storm into the burning mill to save her i thought that was like the highlight of the episode and my second favorite scene is when andy gets to shoot someone <laughs> and I, like, I just like and it's because it's andy like andy's one of the most beloved characters on any tv show he's such a nice guy he's he's fun to watch like i wish we would have more scenes with andy like he doesn't really do much to advance the plot but I like these small moments with these characters. And that's one of the things that makes Twin Peaks such a fascinating show is there's so many characters populating this show. In each and every single episode, they still find room to develop these characters. Even a small character like Andy, like each and every single one of these characters is important to David Lynch. Like he thinks that each and every single one of them is just as equally as important as the star, be it Cooper or even Laura Palmer. Yeah, which which sometimes presents a problem a little bit later down the line, but we'll get there. I mean, I think that the the scene you mentioned with with Jack Nance and Piper Laurie just sort of actually having a conversation where like nobody's act, where nobody's trying to like undercut the other is a really good scene, and I think Piper Laurie is kind of underserved by some mm. of her material a lot because she's so acid all the time, mind you. I say that, but she does my favorite line reading of the entire episode when. Um, <laughs> She finds Shelly and she's just like, you've got a thing in your mouth. I can't understand you. <laughs> and there's the, but, you know, but you know, the place is on fire. But when Piper Laurie is opposite of Jack Nance in that scene and like Pete is talking to Catherine, there's this great moment in which he tries to embrace her and she just rolls back her eyes. Like it's just little things like that. Like it says so much about her character, so much about their relationship. Like I love, love that sequence. Well, yeah. And the fact that he's hugging her like at her waist almost. I don't know what, whether that was uh, Jack Nance's performance decision or how the scene was written, but it's, it tells you everything you need to know about uh, about good old Pete. There was a couple other good... I you know We already slagged off Mark Frost for a couple of his stylistic decisions, so there was a couple moments that I wanted to praise. I actually think the scene of Jacques talking about the night uh, of him with him and Laura and Renette and the chip and the bird uh, is very effective, and that's 
uh, at least partially down to Battlementi's score for sure. But the the slow zoom and some credit to uh, to Walter Okowitz, who never gets mentioned when you talk about great actors on the show. But despite the dodgy accent, he is really really good as Jacques. Yeah, he is. He's really unsettling and really yeah, just makes you shiver. Like just ugh. Bite the bullet, baby. (laughs) The other moment also actually involves Jacques, and it is uh, right after Leland um, smothers him, and the the music cuts out, and Leland kind of like keens back a little bit and opens his mouth, and there's this sound like it's a not quite musical sound and a not quite human sound. And it's really, really unsettling. And it's like right up there with any, it's it's a very short moment and Frost doesn't have enough of them in this episode, but it is up there with like prior Lynchian effects we've mentioned. But you know, the thing is, I think we're, 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 we're coming across as being a little too hard on Mark Frost because, okay, clearly his direction isn't as, as I would say, for lack of better words, interesting has some of the previous directors. I mean, uh, Tim Hunter directed an episode in season one, right? Yeah. Yeah. That was season one, right? Like, there's like so many great directors that that made an appearance throughout season one of Twin Peaks, and I'm not as fond of his directing style. But I I do believe that, and I could be wrong, but I, I kind of feel like David Lynch and Mark Frost crafted the episode has leverage so they can be guaranteed a second season. Like, I don't know if it was picked up for a second season prior. Like, it kind of felt like the episode was constructed so this, they can guarantee themselves a second season. That's why. It sort of rang false. It was kind of like of all the episodes in Twin Peaks, at least in season one, this felt like specific scenes were written in and specific things happen just to please the studio. I, I don't know about that. I, I don't think it's quite as cut and dry as all that. Um, I mean, I think Lynch and Frost were pretty clear from early on that this was always going to be a show that that operated this way with the kind of melodramatic uh, cliffhanger kind of like perpetual narrative drive sort of stuff. Um, I mean, I think, A, they always knew they weren't going to sort of reveal Laura's killer for as long as they possibly could. Um, I, like, I'm sure that one could dig this research up and really find out if you really, really tried. My understanding is is that it had not been revealed at this point by the um, television studio if they were being renewed or not. And there was some um, consternation around this. I mean, certainly newspapers had already started to report on this actually quite early. I mean, that's what's sort of really surprising is basically two, one to two episodes after the pilot, newspapers were already making hay out of this idea that, oh, ratings are dropping on Twin Peaks and maybe it won't be renewed and maybe it's just too weird. And I mean, honestly, a lot of that I feel like you could chalk up to newspapers just wanting to talk about, oh, it's too weird. I don't know. It's too weird. Um, but I, I do get the sense that from what you could tell about the way the studio was acting, the studio had more or less agreed that they were going to be renewing it for a second season. I don't think Lynch and Frost were operating under some deadline of, of thinking that they needed to pull these like theatrics in order to be renewed i'm fairly sure that isn't what was going on and i'm sure if i'm wrong about that the twitterverse will tell me but i'm fairly sure that's what the scenario was the the reason why i say this and again i said like you know this is just a theory uh but it's because the whole entire season seems to take its time in revealing some of the mysteries and developing these characters and like when i think back on Twin Peaks, I think about a show about murder at times, right? But in season one, apart from Laura Palmer, who, let's face it, is killed off screen because the show starts with her dead body uh, being discovered. The only person that I can remember that's actually that actually dies is Jacques' brother, right? 
who's killed by Leo. So it's not like people just are killed on like a weekly basis, not like the walking dead or (laughs) you know what I mean? So it just, it kind of feels like there's so much that happens in this episode. Mm -hmm. And when you compare it to the six episodes, plus the pilot that came prior, it seems like there's a lot shoved in into like 45 minutes of TV. And it kind of felt like there was a reason for it, but it could be wrong. Right. I mean, I think there is a reason. I, I'm just not sure it's uh, necessarily like a practi- as practical of a reason as they were trying to get renewed. I mean, I, I think it's, I think it's of a piece with the overall approach that both Lynch and Frost are interested in taking, which is playing with the kind of genre constraint stuff around both soap opera and to a lesser extent sort of mystery. I mean, here I think is the episode where you really see soap opera come to the fore as a as a kind of. Um, yeah, framing device that they're, that Frost, I mean, I think Frost's affinities, again, really lie with this, and he's really interested in kind of like simultaneously showing his maybe mastery of it as a form, as well as uh, maybe playing out, yeah, like the slightly goofier episode, slightly goofier aspects of it. And of course, you get uh, the same reference um, that we've had throughout the season, which is Invitation to Love, the in, inner, uh, the diegetic world soap opera that's happening. And I, I want to come back to that later because there's a great Invitation to Love sequence in this. But, um, but one thing I wanted to mention, because I, I think I meant to mention it last week, and Simon, please stop me if I did already say something about this last week, but I don't think I did, which was the relationship of Twin Peaks to uh, the show Peyton Place. Do you guys, have you guys read about this? Uh, no, but this is not a thing you have talked about before. I can confirm Okay, this. good. Okay. <laughs> good. I did not. I'm not repeating myself. Um, I can confirm because I listen to your podcast twice every week. Aw, Ricky, so nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, so Peyton Place was uh, a novel that was made into a film in 1957, I believe, uh, and then in the early 60s was developed into a soap opera that ran, oh, I'm not sure what network it ran on, but um, it was it was sort of infamous. I mean, the, uh, the, the novel and then the film are set in a New England town, and they are, it was basically one of the first kind of... Um, shows, events, narratives to make real hay out of the idea of a a small town with a really, that seems a certain way on the surface and underneath is like really deeply kind of seedy and terrible, horrible things are happening under the surface. And uh, Frost and Lynch, when they were sitting down to write the pilot of Twin Peaks, rented a screening room in Los Angeles uh, and rented a print of the 57 film Peyton Place and watched it as a sort of like framing device in order for their, like to spur their thinking about Twin Peaks. Um, and apparently, though, like there's even sort of more interesting connections where they used the town, this like Peyton Place town in New England as uh, their kind of inspiration for the idea of, of starting Twin Peaks by building it from a map. So they use the kind of town in Peyton Place as like a, a town that they then built into the Twin Peaks town, I guess. They kind of use it as a structuring thing. Um, and there's there's a ton of other kind of interesting things there. For example, Russ Tamblin, who plays Dr. Jacoby, had a bit part in Peyton Place. Um, Peyton Place would go on to become like a really big deal soap opera on uh, whatever network it was. I don't remember. But for a while there, it was so popular that they were running it like four, four nights a week. And, and this was not necessarily the kind of soap operas that were running during the day. I believe Peyton Place ran at primetime, although I should have confirmed that. But um, anyway, Peyton Place was like a fascination. And it's so funny because Twin Peaks ends up kind of mirroring some of the things that happened in Peyton Place, which is that Peyton Place was so hugely popular. And then as it went into its later seasons, they basically started writing characters out. Some of them had to leave. Sometimes they just had too many plot lines and they started introducing a whole bunch of new characters, like with new actors and nobody could keep track of who was playing who. And <laughs> yes, this is previews of the dark days that we will get on uh, on Twin Peaks. But anyway, I, I think that's just interesting for this. Yeah. The reason why you mentioned this is because you and Simon are going to do a podcast about this specific TV show. 
about Peyton Place. Yeah, we're going to do future. a Peyton Place show. Um, <laughs> oh my god, I would kind of love to. I wish we could get a copy of Peyton Place. I bet it would be amazing. Uh, all all I want to say about the Peyton Place thing is that a couple of years ago, I, I, I was short stint living with my folks, and my folks are very, very very difficult to please humans when it comes to pop culture like way harder than anyone on this podcast or whoever or whoever will be on this podcast and um one of the things that my mom is very fond of saying if, if we start watching a tv show and it introduces like any kind of like soapy romantic element that's even like slightly extraneous she'll be like oh it's peyton place all over again every time <laughs> i have a question has there ever been a TV show in which a character who has technically never really appeared within the show, who in this case, Laura Palmer, who's dead right away in the first episode is so perfectly developed. Like her character is just like her character is probably, it's like she has a continuing, a continuing key role within each episode, even though she's not present. Uh, you know what I, I, I had a thought about, I mean, this is we've talked about sort of the continuing presence and evolution of Laura Palmer before in the show. But another thing that occurred to me while watching this episode was if Laura Palmer hadn't died and was still alive and we were like watching, we, we were like sort of peeling away these layers of her character in this way, people would not have been able to deal with that character being alive. <laughs> the way that she manipulates everyone and like in is like really has this this maniacal dimension and this very these very peculiar notions about sex and using people and I, which admittedly yes that all comes from another place and we get to talk about that later but still like they they get away with a lot with Laura that I don't think they would have been able to get away with with any living person and I think it says something that she's got way more layers than any like as much as I like the characters who are alive on Twin Peaks none of them have the depths of Laura Palmer well, none of them have a connection to Laura Palmer. I mean, everyone seems to adore and love this girl and or have some some deep connection to her. Or but think they every do. Time, or think they do or yeah. want or believe. But every time a secret is discovered, there's a repercussion felt by just about everyone in town. Like, um, So I just find it fascinating how she's like technically the central character of this show, even though she's dead within the first five minutes of the pilot. I think that idea that Laura has to be basically dead or absent because, I don't know, yeah, because she embodies all of this sort of stuff that that's, would have been too kind of uh, difficult to handle. I mean, I think that's a great point about the, like the way that the show formally works, yeah. I think the thing about Laura Palmer is she sort of, she... She's like a stand-in for everything that's great and everything that's terrible about Twin Peaks, like the actual town. I mean, yes and no, though. Like, I think because the, the the interesting thing about Laura, particularly as is developed on the show that we'll see going forward, is so much of the stuff that is supposed to be good, like that she's supposed to embody this sort of um, idealistic kind of uh, experience of the teenager in a small town, is is so completely revealed to be not accurate. Like, it's all false. It's all an image. It's all pretend. Whereas so many of the characters who, you know, are still alive and are, like, the structuring characters of the show, like Donna and James, as we've talked about a bunch, um, maybe end up actually being the kind of, like, quote-unquote uh, good elements or something. Or, like, the, untaint the untainted, like, this pure idealism or something where, I don't know, yeah, I think pretty from pretty early on, Laura, it's kind of revealed that 
everything about her that that is supposed to be this goodness is is tainted in a certain kind of way. I mean, not I'm not saying that in a judgy way, but it's like it, that's not what the show is doing. But that's no different than Twin Peaks itself. I mean, there's a specific scene. I think it's in episode seven in which I believe it's Hank talks about how you know this is a great place, but with that comes this darkness that lives in the woods, and that's why for me, Laura's sort of like a stand-in for Twin Peaks. Like it has this. Uh, facade of being perfect but once you stay at Twin Peaks long enough then you start to see the darkness that lives within this small community Um, speaking of which I for whatever reason never noticed this and I could be wrong but correct me correct me here if I'm wrong but each episode takes place within 24 hours right Uh, approximately this is like 24 before 24 was ever a thing well yes and no I mean this is actually something I was going to bring up Theoretically, this episode takes place over like an hour because, uh, you know, we're intercutting between all these plots and Leo specifically tells Shelly that that within an hour, Bobby's going to be dead. So we assume that, no, that's roughly the, 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 the time span we're looking at. And like, clearly Twin Peaks is in like some quantum leap alternate universe where time doesn't move the same speed because like just the way people are moving from place to place and the amount of stuff that's happening there's absolutely like people are getting from places like like you have to get to one eye jacks by boat right cooper's going from place to place and everyone's on stakeout and but everything happens over the course of like 45 minutes it's almost happening in real time no 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 no, no. It, it doesn't happen over the course of 45 minutes every episode covers a period of 24 hours so it's the day to day life of this specific town which yeah, but usually this... starts with a cup of coffee by the way yeah but i mean simon's point is that like this the time in this episode's a little weird but there, there certainly is a little bit of that like griffith's uh kind of style montage where like you know two characters the cut between them seems to imply maybe 20 minutes has passed and then you know cuts between two other characters and three hours have gone by and it's and then you cut back to the first people and it's the same timeline it's unfolding still and so there definitely is a little bit of that in this episode but yeah i, I hadn't even really put it together but certainly the timelines here are much more condensed uh than the previous episodes yeah. i mean the i mean the, the the stuff that really doesn't work in this episode i think is again portends like future darkness and it's stuff like that long sequence where we find out about we find out that joan is also a murderer uh sorry we find out that josie is also a murderer so there's like <laughs> just so much murdering in this episode even if some of it is in the past um and yeah things like that things like um the sequence with jacoby getting getting beat upside the head which then obviously leads to that shot we don't particularly like um there's mm-hmm. just there's some i think the reason that you're feeling that sort of uh that that feeling of studio crunch that you were kind of alluding to ricky is the fact that they do feel the need to make progress on like literally every single plot and character element they possibly can and it makes you realize that like quite a few of, of the individual plot and character elements are not necessarily that interesting. Uh, mm-hmm. But you only, but you only kind of notice when they're happening all at the same time. Well, the last evening at times feels like a horror movie. Like for example, uh, when Leland's stalking down the hospital hallway, when he suffocates Jacques, when Leo picks up the ax and tries to behead uh, Bobby I mean, there's so many scenes in this film, and, and I'm not just talking about like what's happening within the scene, but just the way it's like photographed, the lighting, uh, the camera shots. I mean, it looks like they've lifted specific uh, like framing devices from 80 stalker movies, like 80 slasher films. But 
in terms of like the way it ends, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about them shooting Coop in the final scene. I don't think it's terrible. Like it does sort of work, but it feels like a desperate attempt to get viewers to return to season two. But that's what it's playing with. Like that's what its point is, is that it's so overt and it's and it's reference to the kind of soap opera genre. Like that you're here the hero is always killed and you know, like that and I also think too it's part of what they're doing in in terms of having every single plot line get some screen yeah. time in this episode. Because, you know, not every other episode necessarily does that, but this one has to. Uh, I mean, I think the coop I, I also think there is something kind of funny about the way that you do get that last shot with the, the close up of the gun uh, sort of coming out of nowhere shooting coop like there again there's almost a reference to kind of um like silent film melodrama here like again it's this sort of good guy bad guy like the gun comes out of nowhere and shoots somebody from off screen i mean it, it i i kind of i kind of get what frost is going for here i i like it i don't i don't think it's bad and i, I think i remember the first time i saw this episode like being absolutely horrified by coop being shot right mm-hmm. i mean I, I do think that it works both on the level of a kind of um straightforward viewing as just sort of engrossed spectator as well as the kind of commentary level uh, meta level thing as well uh, two mm. quick points one i honestly do not remember who shot coop i i actually don't oh really i do <laughs> <laughs> uh two you mentioned it being a bit like a slasher film and uh to his credit bobby even lets out kind of a final girl style yelp <laughs> when he sees leo <laughs> i know in that i room. really enjoyed it's that it's a really good sound it's very yeah. good well <laughs> I don't think the ending feels contrived. I just wish they were a bit more creative in how they decided to fake out Coop's murder, possible murder. Like, we're not entirely sure if he's dead or not at this point. But I don't know. It it honestly looked like a scene straight out of Roger Rabbit. Like, there's a scene in Roger Rabbit, the Coop frame Roger Rabbit, that's, like, framed and shot exactly like the ending between Peaks. Might that, again, be also a kind of film noir reference? Like, I hadn't really thought of that before, but they're both doing that, right? So, again, I think think you're picking up on, like, Frost's... Ah, yeah, there's just there's just limitations here in terms of his like <laughs> directorial ability. Frost doesn't feel like he has his own unique vision when directing this episode. It feels like he's imitating. And that mm-hmm. scene looks like he's imitating one of these like classic film noirs from the forties. Like th- there's nothing that feels I don't know, original about it. But it's like a minor quibble. I still think this is a great episode. Um can we talk about the opening scene? Which I thought was really interesting. I don't know how you guys feel about it, but the fact that it opens on this beautiful beach. Which, you know, of course, turns out to be the wallpaper in Jacoby's <laughs> office, right? But it's just like it opens up with the most pleasant Hawaiian setting, and then everything just goes downhill. You know what's funny is it almost seems to, pre- to predict uh, ABC's next attempt to get in bed with filmmakers and do a, a big miniseries thing after Twin Peaks ends, which is Wild Palms. It's like Catherine Bigelow and some other folks. And I, what? I, yeah, have you never heard about this? No. Yeah. Anyway, I never. I've never actually watched it. We had a copy at Movie Land. It was. It was supposed to be like an infamous fiasco, uh, but huh. I've never actually watched it. Anyway, that's that was what I thought of when I saw the the palm trees. Well, but open. It's actually a poster. Sorry, but opening on the poster, like, and then it zooms out. It, it feels like a a deliberate bait and switch tactic. Like it's really trying to get the audience to kind of, I don't know, settle in and look at this beautiful scenery before everything turns into technically like a horror film. <laughs> I mean, it's not like the most out of all the episodes of Twin Peaks, like we could talk about episodes in season two, which feel more or less like David Lynch's directing sort of like Inland Empire or, or Blue Velvet or it, it, it's at times terrifying. But I don't know, like it, it was an it was an interesting setup for 
an episode that at times does play off like an 80s slasher film. That opening sequence is actually one of maybe Frost's stronger kind of stylistic moments in the episode. Uh, I like I like this the the kind of joke almost of having the um, ocean sounds that again in, in a throwback to some of the earlier episodes. You're you're not sure at first if those are diegetic or if they're meant to be just sort of a reference to the way we're feeling <laughs> in uh, Jacoby's Hawaiian. Uh, like therapy paradise office here, which is hilarious. Um, and then of course, Donna turns on a switch later and you realize it's music, but, uh, I don't know. I, I mean, there's some great touches in there, right? Like even, uh, Frost getting to kind of show off a little bit, this sort of very smart sense about character development, like things like the, the Jacoby, uh, marking his life in terms of little, uh, drink umbrellas that he's kept and put tags on. I mean, like that kind of thing, I think there speaks to what, Frost himself brings to the show and, and usually works so well in tension with Lynch is like this really idiosyncratic attention to kind of detail and, and, and like unique kind of character building, which I think, again, Frost is really good at. Um, but yeah, I think just to add to, to what we were talking about before, though, I, I do think after this opening sequence, it's more likely to feel like <laughs> his directorial style is a bit of a limitation as opposed to a kind of open... Uh, yeah, space. Like this open, this first uh, sequence, I mean, again, it feels like it breathes a little bit, like you kind of get some space in it. And increasingly as you go through, because the pressure is on this sort of plot development kind of approach, it just feels like, yeah, Frost could have let himself take a little more space with something. Like the one I wanted to say was, I think, what Simon already kind of pointed out, the sequence where Leland uh, kills uh, Jacques Renault. Like, could you imagine how different that sequence would have been if Lynch had directed it? Like, it just, it, it would have been an entirely different kind of ball game. And I think Frost gets, you get hints of it, like hints of what it might have been with that kind of strange noise that Leland makes and then cuts out when the alarm goes off. But I just think there's, you could see how, even with all the plot kind of encumbrances, there might have been a space to make this a very different feeling episode. I, uh, I have to take a moment. Um, now, way back in our first episode, we talked about how we had access to these IRC archives, and uh, I even pulled out some uh, some strange audio tape uh, and played it for y'all. I don't have any audio tape uh, related to this finale, but there is something I wanted to read you that I think you'll find amusing, uh, because a lot of people were not happy with this finale, and these were mostly people who were really watching the show um uh, on a, as a mystery and, and as, a, as a show with a, quote, coherent plot, a lot of whom probably expected to find out who Laura's killer was at the end of this season. Remember what happened with, uh, with the killing on AMC at the end of season one when they didn't reveal their killer and how pissed off people were? Well, the same thing happened on Twin Peaks, and I, I just want to read you an excerpt from uh, an entry by a fellow named, named uh, Rich Rosen on uh, May 27th, 1990. Uh, and I'm going to skip way down into his post. You can kind of guess uh, what, the, what, the, what the rest of it is. But in reality, it was never a promise at all. It was a scam. Watching the show with the level of sophistication and, inter and interpretation and observation that the show leads you to think it deserves is actually detrimental to the appreciation of the program. Thinking is not a survival trait when it comes to watching Twin Peaks. It is just the opposite. It is an anti-survival trait. It leads you to contemplating the meaning of a log... When a huge bear or a wolf or a tractor trailer comes along and slimes you to pieces because you should have been using your log-given senses to fend for your survival out in the wild instead of thinking about whether or not there were two Lidecker's or whether or not the stuffed toy duck sitting at the edge of the table in the scene where Maddie doesn't touch her cherry Coke at the diner has any significance <laughs> or whether the very fact that Maddie doesn't touch her cherry C-O-K-E is in and of itself significant. It doesn't matter, really, honestly. 
The show is best appreciated by not bothering to think about anything, by watching it just like a common garden variety soap opera, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, there's literally like 2,000 more words in this. Well, you know, I read an article about two years ago, and I can't remember where the article was published, but it was really interesting because it was talking about how the legacy of Twin Peaks is really about how the show would get deeper under the skin of its characters, more so than any show on television prior to, say, I don't know, The Sopranos or Six Feet Under. I can't remember what example this writer gave uh, before the time. And I think that's what I, I, I personally love TV shows that feature a lot of interesting characters. And I think that Lynch is really interested in, in observing these people and how they talk, listen, think, feel. And I think like that's, I think, what makes a show so good because you can feel the emotion throughout the whole entire episode. Like even an episode like this, like the weakest episode, you feel these emotions on these characters. And I think that speaks a lot for the writing and the direction. And of course, the performances, like a lot of these actors at the time weren't relatively known, right? Like they weren't necessarily like, I don't know, type of actors that would get top billing in like Hollywood movies or TV shows. Um, I actually had a huge crush on Kyle MacLachlan when I was younger. I still am a huge fan of Agent Cooper, but I love his character because He's this great detective, but he's also a believer in a supernatural. And I love how he can convince anyone to believe in whatever it is that he believes in, or at least acknowledge and admire him and not really judge him. And I don't know, I just love the way he humanizes his character. And of course, you, you can credit the directors and the writing staff too. But I love his spirit. And I just, I don't know, just his character is just, I mean, Laura Palmer, I think, is honestly the star of this series even though like i said she's dead from episode one because everything centers around her and her character is a central point of every single scene but he's really like he's a scene stealer i don't think there's in my opinion there's no one that can steal a scene from kyle mclaughlin in, in this tv show something that really comes out in this episode is one of my favorite things about cooper that i'd forgotten about is the way, when necessary, he can convince people that he's not a federal agent, even though he's yeah. the feddest-looking fed <laughs> to ever fed in the history of feds. Yeah, which is kind of a joke, because in the previous episode, right, you get Blackie saying to, to Big Ed, you look like a cop, and then she says to Cooper, and you look like Gary, you look like Cary Grant. It's like, apparently looking like a movie star somehow proves that you're not a cop. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, What? <laughs> um, no, I, like, I mean, obviously, Colin McLaughlin, like, I, when you were talking earlier, Ricky, about, about Laura being the kind of most complex character on the show, I think that's totally right. I do think that Coop is, like, a very close second, though, and he is he is such a wonderful kind of fascinating figure, and, and McLaughlin does such an amazing job with him, and I think... Yeah, the sequence with between the extended sequence between him and Renault in the first half of the episode, you, you again get kind of a glimmer of, like, yeah, that, that Coop is maybe... He only has the good, shiny side because there is an awareness of the kind of dark side there as well, right? I mean, the way that he's so easily able to play Renault, the way that he he seems to, again, almost be getting a kind of pleasure out of being able to fool Renault and, and sort of dip his toe into this kind of dark world. I mean, I don't know. Coop is an amazing character. And, and that does get continue to get better and better. Like, there is, we can talk about that next season, but Coop, I think, still manages to mostly remain unscathed by some of the things that happen in the show. But um, I yeah. don't know if yeah. spoken about this prior, but I also like the decision to have Cooper uh, record his um, his daily diary. So he records, mm-hmm. he has basically carries around a voice recorder, which is directed at Diane. 
Um, I don't know, just just something about that that I've always loved because it, it feels like a simple tool to give insight into his mind and his personality, but also to chronicle the show's progress. That said, though, I do not think that this is a type of show in which you can skip an episode. Like, it's very serial. Like, I think every episode has clues and hints as to what these mysteries are all about. And I, like, I don't think I... I'm glad I've never skipped an episode, but imagine watching Twin Peaks back in the day and missing it, missing yeah, like episode yeah. three and then watching episode four a week later, you might be completely, completely lost. I'm sure they had recaps at the time, but I'm not sure they did actually, Ricky. I think that's a, a worthwhile question. I don't think they did do recaps. I think, and that almost certainly contributed to like the difficulty of people keeping up with the show. Yeah. I think this may have been pre recaps. We've never actually discussed uh, Diane before actually. I mean, just on a basic, like, TV-making level, Diane is a brilliant exposition device because she, uh, I mean, she's perfectly Twin Peaksy in, in that she may or may not be a real person. Who knows what she actually represents, although she apparently does send him things like the uh, the ear pillow, so, or maybe, maybe he just manifests them using the power of his mind. Who knows? But um, a perfect exposition device because it fits in with his character it tells you things that we would have no other way of finding out other than him having like a conversation with another person on the screen, which would be terrible. Uh, and it's really funny, which the show often needs. Yeah, exactly. And like I was going to say too, there's also some, there's also a genius kind of perpetual joke in the Diane engagement though, right? Which is that you, you would expect that structure to, to be just that, right? Like an exposition device, a kind of like interior monologue that's exteriorized. Uh, and there's also like a reference to the film noir element there, right? Like there's a you know main character in film noir films like talking to some off-screen force who may or may not be the viewer. Um, I mean, all of these things are kind of in play there. And yet the joke is that Coop is often just listing incredibly gratuitous, like very silly, pointless information into the, into the recorder, right? Like it's, it often has very little to do with kind of plot information. Um, it really often isn't about Coop's feelings, except when he's talking about like wishing that he got better sleep the night before or something. But instead it's this kind of like arcane, uh, yeah, like amassing of kind of unusual funny detail, which is so perfect for, for um, Coop as a character, right? I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't serve a kind of character building purpose, but there is also, again, this awareness of the show, like sort of jokingly and lovingly kind of uh, noting that television is sort of a, a goofy yeah. thing. I mean, and it's just sort of a collection of goofy details. Think about how different all the Diane dialogue would be if we were just hearing his internal monologue instead. Yeah, exactly. But, but but I think it also serves as a reminder that the show isn't necessarily only about the murder of Laura Palmer. Like, too many shows focus on this murder mystery, and it's all about the murder mystery, and, and they get convoluted, and, and, and they're all about setting up, or, or they're focused specifically on the reveal, which happens, say, in, like, the season finale. And this show is not really about a murder. It has a lot to do with Laura Palmer, but it's really about these people in the town. And so that's why like, he's not say recording his, his thoughts on who he thinks killed Laura Palmer. The other thing about the, the recorder, the last thing I wanted to mention about Diane and the recorder is you mentioned Kate, he's listing out all these sort of trivial facts. And I think that's sort of part of something that I talked about before, which is Cooper's uh, seduction at the hands of twin peaks and, the way he he seems to love like every single thing about Twin Peaks except for the Icelanders, <laughs> like literally everything but them, and they're not even part of Twin Peaks. 
He does, he does love all of the things. I mean, how could you not, though, right? It's all coffee and pie and trees. <laughs> it's, it's lovely. <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to add uh, something. Uh, oh, I had a way to connect it to what Ricky said, but I forgot. So now I'll just gracelessly try to insert it here. Uh, but it, it links back to what Simon was talking about earlier with the kind of frustration around um, people's response to the killer not being revealed in these episodes. And it's interesting because, like looking at the press around the show from again one to two episodes in even from the pilot the press is is constantly referencing the fact that that there seems to be a rumor from Lynch and Frost and the studio that the killer will not be revealed this season and they're already sort of making speculation that like if the killer isn't revealed and the show stays this weird and people can't keep track of which character is which it's not going to last like it won't be able to make it to another season and blah 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 um, so there clearly was like already something of an awareness that the killer wouldn't be revealed uh, but it is still fascinating that there was like such a, a heated response and I think this is the kind of moment in the show's life when realistically all of the external stuff to the show, like the, the relationship to the fans, the relationship to the studio, really becomes more and more of a player like in the narrative of the show. I mean, I think you could certainly watch the show up to this point and not really be aware of any of that stuff. And certainly you could be not aware of it and just watch the show however. But like historically, the narrative of what has been what now starts to happen with the relationship to the fans and the relationship to the studio becomes more and more important from this moment the on. I do think that you wanted to talk about Invitation to Love, so I'm just going to yeah. remind you. Because like that show within the show provides a lot of foreshadowing for what actually happens throughout season one. Uh, well, yeah, I can I can reference my my bit there. But, uh, but Simon, did you want to add something before we turn to Invitation to Love? The, the last love? thing I wanted to say about um, Twin Peaks and reception is, like, one of the things I'm most interested in about Twin Peaks coming back is it's not just the fact that the TV landscape is so different now. It's the fact that we're going to see a Twin Peaks that is no longer burdened by having to be watched by millions of people. Like, we, we are now in a TV landscape where something like Crazy Ex-Girlfriend can be watched by, like, a couple hundred thousand, a couple hundred thousand people in a given week and still get renewed just because it gets a little bit of critical love, basically, and some awards attention. Um, and because it's on brand. And, like, it's, it's coming back and it's not going to have to carry... It's not gonna have. To, it's not gonna have the weight of the zeitgeist on it anymore, and that's just another reason that like we have no idea what to expect of it when it comes back. Oh, it's gonna be so different. Like I, I'm amazed. I mean, I think a the fact that that Lynch and and I believe him. I mean, who knows? Maybe this is some kind of ploy, but I would be shocked. I mean, Lynch has been very forthright by saying there will be only these episodes. There isn't. This isn't a ploy to kind of get more to come back later. I mean, I think really he's like this is it, which is great, right? Because then there's no pressure of like like Showtime has already paid for it. <laughs> there is no ability to mess with it later. It's done. It's locked. Um, but I don't know. Yeah, the reception stuff is going to be so interesting going forward in terms of like this question of whether they have to court an audience or not, because I think it's going to be interesting seeing like how Showtime is doing that. I mean, I think this last weekend Showtime was at uh, the South by Southwest Festival in Austin you know, trying to kind of whip up buzz around, and not whip up the buzz, but maybe play with the buzz around the show. They had uh, like an, a pop-up double R diner where Voodoo Donuts was giving away donuts and blah, blah, blah. And I find that even funnier because Lynch has also, and I'm not sure how, I'm sure this is already well known, but like he has been very clear too that there will be no images released from the show leading up to it. I mean, maybe there, we might get something more like a tiny, tiny trailer later on, 
but there will be no like advanced screenings. Nothing is going out to anybody. So Showtime is like going to have to get creative in terms of uh, engaging an audience around this. Oh, but yeah, do we want to talk uh, just the invitation yeah, to love thing there quickly that, that Ricky reminded me of? Um, I didn't have anything that dramatic to say about it, but I thought I would... Uh, just you know, bring in my my intrepid husband Olivier, who is watching these the Twin Peaks episodes alongside me, and he has always very smart things to say. And he has his favorite moment in this episode tonight was the moment with uh, where you get uh, sorry Hank shooting Leo through the window and Bobby on the couch there, um, and then you get this sort of odd cut to Invitation to Love on the television show, and I think. Invitation to Love, you know, it can so easily just function as a kind of meta-commentary, like, look, Twin Peaks gets that it's a soap opera, and you should get that too. And and it's doing that. But there are also moments where it, it works really beautifully. Like, it ends up underscoring the emotion of the show, sometimes pointing out, like, how artificial that is, and yet real. But um, but here you get this moment where there's no sound on the television uh, as um, as Leo's shot, and it's it's this almost, like, very melancholic mm-hmm. moment of, like, Leo encountering his double on the television who's simultaneously shot without sound. It's a very strange, unusual... It's one of the strongest elements, I think, of Frost Direction in this episode, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and... Eric DeRay actually looks like he wants to talk to the television. Like he, he looks like he wants to engage with. Maybe this is just what he thinks pain looks like. But it's just it's it's actually a really it's it's a really effective moment. And I mean, the last thing I wanted to say is that this is an episode with a lot of violence. I mean, Leo can't stop getting shot, and uh, and we get you know we get a, people almost die in a fire, and there's a, a murder that's revealed in the past, and James gets poisoned to death. Uh, oh no! Sorry, I made that one up. That didn't actually happen. That <laughs> uh, was in my dreams. Uh, no, but you gotta admit, when he does find the tape recording, him and Donna, and he hears Laura Palmer speaking about him, that was a great moment because I think yeah, everyone yeah. dislikes James. He's such a boring character. Like he never <laughs> smiles. He's got no personality. I'm like, what is wrong with this character? He's like the worst. <laughs> You're, there's that. That's kind of genius, Ricky. I've never really thought about that, but like Laura's commentary from the tape recorder is like a reflexive commentary about James as a character. Like he's just too nice. It's so boring and awful. Yeah, <laughs> and yet he, he exists in a show where Cooper proves that you could be nice and not be boring. Uh, exactly. Or Andy. Andy is like the nicest character in the TV show, and he's far from boring. Like it's not even that he's nice. I don't like. There's no emotion in the actor's uh, face. Yeah. Yeah. whatsoever he's the like, he's the drake of twin peaks i don't know who drake is but sure <laughs> and with that i think we should start to wrap up uh thank you ricky for joining us uh i know that you run the the goomba stomp uh twitter it's goomba stomp mag you also run the sorted cinema twitter right Sorted Cinema and, uh, well, Goomba Stomp, mostly just to promote articles for the video game section. Sorted Cinema for film, TV, and including this podcast, I promote the podcast over at Sorted Cinema. And, um, yeah, you can find us on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, Pinterest, Flipboard, Snapchat, Instagram, you name it. (laughs) All right. And, uh, Kate, you're on Twitter at Cinement, that's C-I-N-E-M-E-N-T. I want to just add one little thing before we sign off, just because oh, yeah. like, I think you know it's, it's good to say this to the universe sometime. So we've talked on this episode tonight like multiple times about video stores and like our discoveries in video stores. I, w- I wanted to point out to the listeners that like I would never have met Ricky and Simon if it hadn't have been for an awesome video store in Montreal and like the weird, amazing aspect of the universe that it is like the social life of video stores and getting to meet people in video stores. And I know it's too late and we can't save them, but you know, if there's a video store in your neighborhood, maybe just... Pop your head in and 
Give them some money before they all Absolutely. disappear. If not for the video store, I would have never met you, Olivier, because I met you after meeting Olivier, your husband, nor yeah. Simon, yeah. nor would have Sound and Sight ever existed, nor would we be doing this podcast right now. I know. People think it's just about access to some, like, DVDs or whatever. It isn't. It's about the social life of art and the world, people. Let's, let's support it. That's right. Uh. Support your local video store, people, or at least visit it and let... And, and, at, pray tell they they give you some stories because I promise you the people who work at video stores have stories for you if only you ask them. Anyway, oh yes, uh, thank you all so much for listening. We will be back next week with the beginning of season two. Moi. <laughs> Yay.